Revelation chapter 3, beginning in verse 14, the voice of Jesus, our King, speaks to us like this. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. But you don't realize that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove, I correct, and I discipline. So be zealous and repent. Be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. And the one who conquers, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as also I conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of God to us this morning. Let's pray together. God, we confess together as we open your word that we don't love you like we should. Um, We don't trust you like we should. And we don't respond to your word like we should. And so Jesus, we ask you now that you would attend to us by your spirit, that you would meet us here for the variety of ways that my friends are coming in today. There's a thousand different needs, a thousand different concerns, and a thousand different anxieties in this room. And you are familiar with each and you know exactly how to nourish all of us where we are. And so I ask you now by your word to shape us as your people. King Jesus, protect us from the evil when we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, at some point or another, all of us have a moment in our life where as we move forward in different seasons and different moments that maybe uh, are pivotal, uh, pivotal, uh, pivotal, right? We ask ourselves, uh, what am I doing? Where am I going? Where, where is my life headed? Is, is what I'm doing or the things that I'm involved in, things that I'm invested in, do they actually matter? Am I making a difference? What kind of legacy am I leaving, right? Uh, these are kinds of questions that we're drawn to ask in different seasons of life, uh, especially maybe if, we, if we've lost a loved one. We think about um, the, the temporary uh, aspect of our lives and, and where things are headed and we don't, our days are numbered and Am I leaving a legacy? Is anything making a difference? We, we have these existential questions of meaning and purpose. And this week as I was thinking about this text, it, it had me thinking about our church and not just answering those questions or asking those questions for us as individuals, but asking that question for us as a church. So run with me with, with this scenario. It, it's kind of crazy, but, but run with me for a second. If somehow um, tomorrow, we're having services now and in this moment, but somehow tomorrow, if our church ceased to exist, I don't know, some sort of weird evaporation of this cathedral, right? Um, if our church ceased to exist, no, no building and frontline as a people and movement just ceased to exist, would our city notice? Would our city notice? And not just like, would they go, huh, that was weird, that church evaporated, right? Like, not just kind of like a, a headline, but would, would they notice at, 
at a level where would anything that was meaningful cease to be present because we were no longer present? Would our city notice? Would they even care if our church ceased to exist? Would, would good be lost in this city if we were lost in this place, in the core of our city? Think about it on a personal level. If our church ceased to exist, would you care? Would, would, would you care? Would, would anything meaningful in your life cease to be present there because this body, this people, weren't present in, in the way that you know them to be now? Or, or would you just hit rinse and repeat and find another church to kind of maintain status quo with? Would you just replace it? It's an important question for us to ask as a church. Like, are we on mission? Are, are we accomplishing anything? Are we making a difference? A question like this can come up and be really important to discover what's the bottom line? What's the bottom line of our mission? What's the bottom line of our even current condition? And a question that I was sort of asking this week is what good is a church in its city if it's making no difference at all and not bringing anything meaningful to its place? What good is a church? Like what would distinguish us from what would be any functional distinguishing mark of us from a social club, from a rotary club, from any other place in town that just kind of got together out of civic interest? Is there anything that distinguishes us from that, that marks us for God's purposes? That question's really important to ask at an organizational movement level, mission level, even culture level, but also it's right at the heart of what's happening in the conversation of this letter at Laodicea. The hard words that Jesus speaks to this church, we've worked through some really hard words that Jesus is speaking to the churches uh, in these letters, but this letter, we might find the hardest words that he's spoken to any of the churches, at the same time, the most hopeful words. He strikes the balance of these being some of the most aggressive and pointed, hard to hear words as they confront us, at the same time, the most hopeful words. And so in many ways, this letter is the sum of all seven. This letter kind of captures what's happening across the seven letters. And so we'll unpack this letter in three parts. We'll look at first the complaint. Jesus brings forward the complaint against this church. Then we'll look at the underlying cause, the cause. So the complaint, the cause, and then lastly, the invitation. So the first thing is the complaint. Look back at verse 15. Jesus says this, I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. Would that, or I wish you were, either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Okay, so this letter wastes no time in jumping to the core of the issue, right? Uh, in, in, in case you're kind of new to the, the Bible and new to this kind of language, like if you're getting a report from Jesus, this is not what you want at the beginning of your report, right? Like this is not what you're looking for at the beginning of your letter to your church. You're neither hot nor cold. You're lukewarm. It's nauseating and I want to spit you out of my mouth. If you've had any time in church, you've probably heard this passage before. It's probably one of the most well-known, most 
uh, popular of, of the seven letters. And typically, I've, I've heard this passage taught that being hot and cold uh, is defined as if you're hot, you're passionate toward Jesus, you're devoted, you're obedient, you're committed to the cause. If you're cold, you're against God. So either for him or against him. And the way it's typically taught is neither... We, most Christians don't live in either of those two spaces. We said live somewhere in the middle of this kind of lukewarmness where it's confessional, we believe in him, but no functional difference in our life. We maintain status quo. We just look for things to be manageable. We make no real difference. We believe in a resurrected king, but we don't live any kind of resurrected lives, right? We're lukewarm and in the middle. And I think there's some helpfulness in thinking about that and, and kind of diagnosing our affections that way, but I don't believe that's what Jesus is getting at when he says this. When Jesus spoke these words to Laodicea, they would have known exactly what he was talking about when he referenced things being hot, the desirability of things being hot and cold in reference to drink, and then the nauseating, um, hard-to-stomach, lukewarm tepidness of, of water. They would have understand this because when he was speaking to them, he dealt with specifically things direct in their context and specific to this city. So the church at Laodicea, here's what I mean. It was a church, if you look in those, those wonderful maps in the back of your Bible, you know those places um, that may be sometimes more interesting to you than Scripture, right? You look at those maps in the back of your Bible, uh, and you'll notice that Laodicea is a city that's actually located right in the middle of two other cities, Aeropolis and Colossae. Aeropolis to the north and Colossae to the east. The problem with Laodicea, for all the great things it had going for it, it was a city that had no source to natural water. Like it had no natural water source uh, to supply for its people. And so they relied upon the water sources of Aeropolis, six miles to the north, and Colossae, six, 11 miles to the east for its water. Aeropolis was known for its relaxing and soothing hot springs. Hot water flowed from the city, from its hot springs. And, and it was well known people would go there and be healed and be brought to life because of uh, some of the, the aroma of the hot springs. On the east, though, in Colossae, they had the icy, refreshing streams and the rivers of Colossae. And so this city, what they had done, because they had no natural water sources, they built limestone pipes to pipe in waters from Aeropolis and from Colossae. Hot springs to the north icy, refreshing waters to the east. But by the time it reached Laodicea, it was neither hot nor cold. It was lukewarm. It was neither refreshing or soothing. It wasn't relaxing or delightful. It was nauseating. It had become lukewarm in temperature, but also bitter to taste as it traveled those miles in the limestone water ducts. And so what Jesus is saying when he comes to this church is like your water system, you've become lukewarm and bitter to your city. When Jesus refers to this, he's saying, you've become disconnected from your source and you're not good for anything in the city. And so over time, what had happened to this church, they had ceased to be, what this means is they had ceased to be a peaceful prophetic presence in Laodicea. So on the one hand, they no longer brought the prophetic heat of the gospel, evangelizing, calling people away from sin into new life and forgiveness in Jesus, receiving the healing of the gospel. And on the other hand, they no longer had the refreshing cool of love and good deeds that the gospel brings through demonstration. They had exchanged instead from prophetic heat in the gospel and the cool, refreshing relief of love and good deeds. They exchanged those things for a plastic religion that was content with being 
respectable, but not offensive. They wanted their religion to be one that they would bear the name of Christ. They would call themselves Christians, but they weren't committed to obedience. They wanted the emotional warmth of a life of faith, chicken soup for the soul, you might think of it, but they pursued no real life change. They wanted skin-deep religiosity. I, I don't want too much to really confront my comforts and patterns. I'll take my religion skin-deep in order to keep up appearances, but nothing more. When we read this letter to this church, there was no threat of false teaching. There was no threat of persecution like the other churches. And there was nothing about the love they had for one another that marked them as distinct. They weren't hot in their prophetic declaration of the gospel, and they weren't cold in their refreshing demonstration of the gospel with love and good deeds. They were an apathetic church. They were lukewarm. They maintained status quo. They weren't a church for their city. They weren't a church against their city. They were just a church that lived in their city. One of my favorite commentators and theologians, John Stott, about this church said their version of Christianity was flabby and anemic. <laughs> it was flabby and anemic. It, it made no difference and it wasn't attractive and it was good for nothing. On a personal level, Pastor Tim Keller talks about lukewarm faith like this. Individuals can profess not to be secular people. What he means is you can have religious faith. You can profess not to be secular, yet at a practical level, the existence of God may have no noticeable impact on your life, decisions, or conduct. This is because in a secular age like we're living in, even religious people tend to choose lovers and spouses, careers and friendships and financial options with no higher goal than their own present time personal happiness. Lukewarm. God is just the cherry on top. He's just a part of the appendix of your life. He's just there for the leftovers. And so notice again what Jesus says about a faith like this in verse 16. Because you are lukewarm, because you're neither hot nor cold, I want to spew you or spit you out of my mouth. It's nauseating. The word for spit there in the Greek text is the word vomit. This is aggressive language. He's saying, you bear my name, but you care nothing for my heart. You want to claim my kingdom, but you don't have me as your king. You want all of my benefits without my presence. It's nauseating to him. When I was talking to um, one of our other pastors, our pastor in Edmond, David Dare, uh, he was saying how he was just gonna go full tilt on this illustration uh, for Ed, the Edmond congregation today. And uh, you'll be glad I didn't go with it. But uh, here, here's what they're doing in Edmond today. So their hospitality team uh, in serving coffee, they were gonna have um, some, some cups of iced cold iced coffee, and they were going to have some cups of warm, hot coffee, and then some other cups of lukewarm, day-old coffee. To roll through the illustration, nobody wants the middle option, right? Nobody wants the lukewarm, day-old coffee. It's nauseating. You would drink it, and you would think, what's wrong with this church? I don't want anything to do with their coffee. And I was saying, David, that's an amazing thing you're doing. He goes, I said, I think it's going to be amazing the way you preach through that. And he goes, yeah, actually, people probably won't get it at all. They'll just get me some emails saying, your coffee's terrible at your church, right? Uh, 
but, but the point is, it's not good for anything when it's in the middle. Jesus uses such strong language, this church, because again, they bear his name, but they care nothing for his heart. They want the benefits of his kingdom, but they don't want him as king. So now we have to ask a question. Here's what he says to them. Here's their condition. But now, how did they get there, right? Because no church gets planted, no church gets launched, no core team starts meeting and praying and saying, we're gonna set this thing down in the heart of this city and saying, you know what we're gonna do? 14 years from now, we're gonna make no difference at all. Like no one plans that way. No one says 14 years from now, you know what? We're gonna be lukewarm. They couldn't tell if we're Christian or not. We're just gonna hang out in the city. No one starts that way. So how did they get there? Look back at verse 17. Jesus says, for you say, he's talking to the church, for you say, I'm rich, I've prospered, I don't need anything. But you don't realize you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Okay, so back-to-back verses, not the report you want from Jesus. You're lukewarm, you're nauseating to me, and you actually don't realize what you are. You have zero self-awareness. You're just skin deep. So a couple of things about what's going on here in this passage and why Jesus speaks to these things. The city of Laodicea was one of the wealthiest of the seven cities we get to read from. They were, um, they were proficient in their banking systems in the first century. They were one of the only cities under Roman empire that never had to consult Rome for financial help. They were really proud of themselves at a financial level. Historians even note that there was a popular saying in Laodicea um, where they would walk around and they would say to one another, kind of as the city mantra, the culture that they breathed, I have become rich and I need nothing. It was like the way Oklahomans would say boomer sooner, right? Just, or thunder up, like that, that, that was their mantra. I have become rich and I need nothing. So they were financially well off. The second thing is they had a thriving fashion industry. People would come from all over the ancient world to buy the fine black wool clothing that was sold in Laodicea. They had a thriving fashion industry. And third, they were a center for medicine. They had a training center for doctors and they had developed in their city an ointment that would treat all kinds of vision ailments. So they had success like crazy in the fashion industry, in the medical field, and they were wealthy and they were rich. And so when Jesus pinpoints the cause of their lukewarmness, he addresses them right at the spot they felt strong and secure. The things they trusted for strength and security, Jesus says, that right there is numbing you from seeing what you really are. Jesus says to this church the exact opposite thing he says to the church at Smyrna. They were a poor people in Revelation 2.9. I know your poverty, but you're rich. They were poor, but Jesus saw them as soul wealthy. He says to this church, you are rich, but you don't see that you're poor. To Laodicea, he was saying, you see yourself to be rich, you're well-dressed, and you're full of vision, but it's only skin deep. Success has numbed you from seeing at the soul level, you are poor, you are blind, and you are naked. So in all of their comfort, possessions, achievement, they had got to the place where they no longer felt their need for Jesus. And so here's where I wanna draw this to us. I'm not just talking about Laodicea. This isn't just a report on a church 
a few thousand years ago in modern day Turkey now. That, that's not what this is. They actually, if we're honest enough, they're not too different from us. They're not too different from us. Maybe the only thing separating us from Laodicea is a few thousand years and we have better gadgets. Maybe that's the only thing separating us. We live in a moment where we can manage our own digital utopias through our posts and media feeds. We can have anything we want. We are a wealthy people, some of the wealthiest in the world. We can have anything we want at our doorstep in two days with free shipping. Who needs any real relationships anymore? I can have all kinds of social experiences if I just keep swiping right. I don't need depth. I don't need awkward getting to know you phase. I'll just swipe right and spread myself all over the place from experience to experience. We don't even have to wait week to week to watch TV shows anymore. They come to us on demand. You just wait till the season's over. You hop on Netflix and you do it without commercials and with your favorite pint of ice cream to binge the whole way through. What's so scary about all of this is if I give an explanation like that and you didn't know what I was talking about, it would sound a lot like I'm just saying, don't we live in a crazy world? Isn't this world nuts? Aren't people out there crazy? But the problem with that is that's not a description of the world. When Jesus says this, he's speaking to the church. This is the experience of those who bear his name. In college, I had a friend who was a missionary in a third world country, and uh, he had some amazing, amazing stories to tell. And uh, I mean, just among a people who didn't have anything, none of the developments that we have, and just a baseline, rock bottom, uh, at times below zero living standards. And um, he was amazed with the fact that they would pray like crazy all night, Friday night prayer vigils on the weekly, you know? And they were seeing things like healings and conversions and the gospel go forward. And people had love for God like he just was not seeing in the American church. And he asked one of their pastors, it's amazing what you have happening here and the way you see God respond all the time. And his response, the pastor of this third world country in this church said, well, that's because in America you have Tylenol. Cut to the chase, what he was suggesting was you have so many amenities to numb yourself from the tension points of life that you fail to see that God is the one who makes a difference. He had no qualms with Tylenol. But the point is, it's like we play existential whack-a-mole with our lives, right? So like tension happens in my marriage. Ah, social media, bam, right? Uh, things are tough at work. I don't know, Hulu for hours, got it, right? And we just numb ourselves. We just numb ourselves over and over again instead of recognizing maybe at the bottom of all that, God's trying to grab our attention. And so we're in a dangerous moment of living in a space where we are amusing ourselves to death. I feel this in me. We are amusing ourselves to death. We might tell ourselves that everything's okay with all our advancements and all of our technology and all of our entertainment. We might tell ourselves it's all okay, but the anxiety and depression rates of our day don't lie. Porn addictions and divorce numbers don't lie. And the pattern of intermittent dependence upon God in our own lives doesn't lie, right? God, we're desperate for you when life is terrible. But when life is manageable, 
I'll see you again when life is terrible, right? The church is lukewarm. We are lukewarm and distasteful to Jesus simply because we rely too much on ourselves and we love to hit cruise control as often as possible so long as life is manageable. We love cruise control. But I want you to notice where we finish this morning. Jesus speaks tenderly to this church once again with invitation. Look at verse 18 through 20. It says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, white garments so that you may clothe yourselves uh, from uh, the shame of your nakedness and it would not be seen, salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. And those whom I love, I reprove and correct and discipline, so be zealous and repent. I stand at the door and knock and if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. So this passage ends with two invitations, which I just want to pause there and acknowledge that for a second, how amazing that is. There are two invitations that this passage ends with. Think about what Jesus has just said to this church. You're lukewarm. You nauseate me. You have no self-awareness. You mock me with your own riches as though you need nothing, and your own breath is held together by my power. And yet he comes to this church with invitation with invitation, not ultimatum, not ultimatum, invitation, right? So you think about the seven churches, there's been hard words to these churches. And you would think if we were Jesus in this spot, we would have bailed on these churches a long time ago. And yet what's amazing about Jesus is he pursues these churches like crazy. There is nothing amazing about these churches. The only thing amazing about these churches is that somehow Jesus doesn't give up on them. That's what's amazing about these churches. He's amazing, right? And so there's invitations. How patient is Jesus? How committed is Jesus? The first invitation comes in verse 18. He says, come buy from me. Now, this is amazing language. He doesn't mean to purchase something from him. When Jesus says, buy from me, he's, he's not asking to you to bring your money as though he needs your money. He means do business with me. You've done business with the world. You've bartered with the world far too long. You've done the same old things with the same old results that leave you in the same old place. Come do business with me. You have nothing to bring, but I have everything to give. I have everything to give. And he names three things that he wants to work with them on. He says, I'll give you gold. You think you're wealthy? You think you're wealthy, but I'll give you gold refined by fire. What he's talking about is I'll give you real status before God. I'll give you real status before God. I'll make you actually wealthy. The second thing he says is I'll give you white garments. He's talking about righteousness, forgiveness, and covering. And track with me on this one. This one's, this one's pretty big. Every one of us are looking for garments. Every one of us are looking for covering. Every one of us, whether you're a believer here today or you're not a Christian, every one of us are looking for garments. Every one of us are looking for covering because we know what we're not what we ought to be. We know that we're not what we should be. Like this is why you work so hard. This is why you worry so much about what you look like. This is why you worry about your resume, how much money you're making. This is why you have so much worry because you're trying to cover for yourself something that you're actually insecure about. And so you work tirelessly on the treadmill of approval. And Jesus is saying, look away from those things. They're what's destroying you. It's making you lukewarm. 
and I want to cover you. I want to cover you. And Jesus is the only one that can actually cover us in the way we need to be covered because his verdict is the only one that stands. It's the only one that stands. And the third thing he says is I want to give you salve for your eyes. Remember, they were a medical They were medical people who believed they had all kinds of fix to have right vision. And Jesus was saying, no, I want to bring you new life so you can see the world the way I see the world. And so the question we have to ask then is, okay, so Jesus is so confident that he can offer us something that nothing else in this world can offer us. How is he so confident? Like, how is Jesus just so assertive to say, I got it, no one else has it? Here's how. Because he had sufferings that paid the price for our sins and he has a resurrection, which is the sign and seal that his sufferings actually were enough. They were actually enough. The resurrection means the check cleared. The check cleared. So how can he offer us wealth? Because he was impoverished in our place, forsaken by God, absorbing wrath due for our sins. He was forsaken so that we would never have to be. How can he offer us white robes? Because he was stripped naked, bearing the shame of our sin. He was laid bare in our humiliation so that we could be covered. How can he offer a salve for our eyes? Because as they crucified him, they blindfolded him and they punched him in the face saying, prophesy, which one of us hit you? He was blinded by our own wickedness so that we might see afresh. So the invitation The first invitation is come and let me bring good news to you. You don't have to cover yourself. I got it covered. The second invitation, and we're almost done, comes in verse 20. And he says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. I love this, especially following the first invitation. Because this means Jesus is not interested in just giving you a bunch of stuff, gold and robes and salve for your eyes. It's not stuff that he's ultimately giving with this invitation. He says, I want to give you myself. I want to give you myself. He says, I stand at the door and knock. This is not you better pursue God or else. This is God is pursuing you. He's already at your threshold. He's already knocking your door down. He's saying, open and I'll eat with you. And you with me will dine together. I love this because the Bible is chocked full of examples of who Jesus eats with. The scriptures say he was accused of eating with drunkards and gluttons. He ate with tax collectors and prostitutes. Translation, Jesus came to eat with people like you and me. It's not clean yourself to get to my table It's you could never clean yourself, just get to my table. He came to eat with people like you and me. And so the place where you and I believe that we have to prove ourselves to God, this invitation is saying you have nothing to prove. I've taken care of that. Let's just eat. He wants to clank glasses with you. He wants to break bread with you. He wants to share stories together. 
So the pathway of being restored, check this out as we end today, the pathway of being restored from lukewarm indifference. The whole idea of today is not put your religious to-do list together and check all the boxes and jar yourself out of lukewarmness and apathy and indifference. That's not what's happening. It's not your to-do list. The invitations have nothing to do with you doing anything. It's look at what's been done for you. He offers you gold, robes. He brings salve to your eyes so you can see afresh and he prepares a table for you. Just be with him and your soul is jarred to life again.